Hello and welcome back to the Shoot Hub podcast, the podcast that makes running your shoot easier. My name is George Brown, editor at Guns on Pegs and Shoot Hub. Uh, my colleague's name is Digby Taylor, managing director of Guns on Pegs. Digby, what's new with you? Yeah, hello, George. It's funny, really. I was thinking about this earlier, what's going on at the minute. A lot of my friends who don't really understand the shooting world think that we take a break from February through till uh, till September. Um, but actually, this is the busy time of year. Um, for us, as well as for for all of our listeners, um, preparing, you know, getting shoots ready for next season. Um, a lot of shoots advertising at the minute, um, with quite a bit of spare um, availability. But so yeah, keeping busy. How about you, George? Yeah, well, um, as you say, it's a busy time of year. But I like to focus on the not work side of things a bit. I've been <laughs> uh, campaigning heavily against the squirrels in my garden. Uh, I've had four for the week so far. Uh, with the air, with the springer um, from the kitchen door, which is quite good fun. <laughs> Can you give us an update on your your cock pheasant that thinks he's a chicken? If you read the uh, the guns on pegs po- uh, the guns on pegs newsletter, well, uh, the, the hen pheasant has started making a more regular appearance. She seems to have chosen one of the cock pheasants, so uh, they make an appearance first thing every morning. Um, the other three are looking pretty miserable, um, and are even more interested in the hen chickens than they were before also <laughs> quite a strong aroma of fox around the hen house at the moment um so uh, i might need to upgrade from the from the air rifle to something with a bit more oomph uh, in case he turns we'll, up we'll have to ask our ask our guest in a minute if he's ever come across a a crossbreed between a, a pheasant and a chicken and what that might be called yeah exactly <laughs> so digby uh, this is episode five, so it might be good uh, just to give anybody new a quick explanation of what this podcast is all about. Yeah, brilliant. The Shoot Hub podcast is for anyone with an interest in running a shoot of any size or shape. That might be a big commercial shoot, a private estate, or a knockabout farm shoot or syndicate like George and I have on our family farms. You could be an owner, a keeper, a keen syndicate member, or just interested in the day-to-day running of, a, of or the behind-the-scenes of a shoot. We're going to talk about some practical stuff hopefully some helpful tips and have a bit of fun whilst we're at it. Exactly. And each episode, we are joined by a different special guest, an expert at what they do. Um, And they will do their best to educate me and Digby and hopefully uh, everybody listening about their particular field. So Diggers, why don't you introduce today's guest? Brilliant. Yeah, today we've got, we're joined by Richard Crofts. I don't think he needs much of an introduction because if you bought chicks or poults in the last 10 years, you probably bought them uh, off Crofty. Um, he's recently finished up working at Bettis Hall, uh, where he hosted at the Brigands in the winter and ran the game farm in the summer, amongst many other things. And he's now gone to work for himself, along with his wife, Lizzie, at RC Crops, involved in game birds, cover crops, agricultural seed supply, game farm kit, the whole lot. Crofty, welcome to the Shoot Hub podcast. Thank you very much, guys. No, lovely to be on here again. No, thank you for the introduction. Yeah, you're one of the lucky few who's, who've done the Guns on Pegs and now the, the Shoot Hub podcast as well ticked off the list. I feel very lucky and very <laughs> honoured to, uh, to be here once again, guys. So thank you. Well, we're very pleased to have you with us. Sort of echoes a bit of what you, uh, you do, really. I mean, in terms of the hosting, as well as the, the, um, the Shoot Hub side of things with the, the keepers, managers and owners, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I absolutely think that's right. And, um, you know, having 15 years of experience from um, Bettis Hall, which you're aware of, um, I have been very lucky to see all elements of the shooting field, um, whether it's behind the scenes, um, you know, managing the estates and getting them up and ready for the coming season, 
together with all of the other end of the spectrum from um, drinking champagne with the guests when they're enjoying a good day shooting. Mm. Um, so, you know, we really have seen the whole thing from egg to peg, if, as it were, um, and actually with sort of more humble beginnings before I even started, you know, I would walk up a pheasant. Um, I'd walk 10 miles if there was a chance of even <laughs> yeah. seeing a pheasant. So we really have come from, from um, you know, from the absolute delight of shooting um, and loving it from a young age all the way through the sort of different sort of um, shoots all the way up to to the, the high-end commercial stuff. So I've been very lucky to see all of it, um, which um, which I love. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Before we, before we get to know you, um, Crofty, in a minute, um, can we have an answer to, to George's question or my question about the, the cock pheasant and, and chicken cross? So although I have seen many pheasants of big breeds where they don't fly and I'm I was sure that there was some sort of chicken involved in them. Uh, no, I haven't. But what I have done is I have crossed a Reeves with a normal pheasant, which is quite interesting. Um, but no, we have a, a, a technical term if we have a drive where we have the big French common ringnecks, the big old traditional ones that sort of look like a Hercules when they try and take off. <laughs> we call them chickens, but they're actually pheasants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. So, uh, so not yet, but uh, you know, never say never. Work in progress. Exactly. George, you I'll, might I'll, be the first to. I might. To yeah. manage it. it might make my name. Um, so, Crofty, the way we like to kick things off on the Shoot Hub podcast is to help everybody listening get to know you a little bit, and we do that with a quick fire questions round. Uh, they're kind of either or type questions. You just have to say the first thing you think. No need to justify yourself. Um, so, uh, we will start with, uh, beating or picking up? Picking up. Pheasant or partridge? Oh, that's difficult. Both, but I'd say pheasant. <laughs> uh, Wales or Exmoor? Oh, that's difficult. It's going to have to be Exmoor going forward. Excellent. Uh, walked up or driven? Driven. Labradors or Spaniels? Labradors, 100%. Slow gin or dams and vodka? Dams and gin would be better, but if it has to be one of them, um, <laughs> slow gin. Uh, roast pheasant or venison casserole? Venison casserole. Uh, wellies or boots on a shoot yeah. day? Phew, wellies, 100%. <laughs> Chameaux, I assume, I think, from the pictures I've seen. Actually, Dunlops. No, definitely Chameaux. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The ones with the frogs. Frogs on the eyes on the front. And uh, fishing or shooting? Shooting. Are there any of those you feel the, the burning need to clarify? I think the, the Wales and Exmoor one. We, we normally ask Wales and Yorkshire, but I thought um, I yeah, thought you, I'd be, I yeah, thought you be might. a little bit tricky. Uh, Wales, well, obviously, Brigands and all Welsh shoots have been very, very close to my heart and have given mm. me a living for the past 15 years. Um, and, you know, Brigands to me is a very, very special place for obvious reasons. Probably hosted over a thousand days there. Um, however, going forward, new challenges new private shoots to look after, um, you know, going forward, it's Exmoor, you know, we'll, yeah. Did you get um, involved when uh, Betis had that shoot on uh, Molland, wasn't it, on Exmoor? So, early, yeah, absolutely, early doors. I mean, when I started in 2008 at Betis, um, <clears throat> we'd just taken charge on, we had Molland and Westmoreland. Um, mm. A chap called Caleb Sutton ran all three of those at that point. Um, so I used to get down to Molland. I hosted a lot at Molland in my early days. Um, a little bit at Chargat, but much, much more at Molland. I mean, Molland to me, uh, or even Exmoor to me, is where it all started for me. I, that was the first time I ever saw any sort of commercial shooting at a place called Wellshead. 
Um, and I've sort of, as I say, done full circle. And, you know, in those days, back in early 2000s, when, when you first got introduced to it, you know, you walked in a pub and there'd be stag hunting, um, shooting people, fox hunting people. You know, it was a massive sort of country sports theatre down there. And it's very, mm. it, you know, it's very, very close to my heart down there. I think it's fantastic. Well, back to the West Country. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as Digby mentioned in his introduction, you've just uh, left Bettis Hall after 15 years, you said. So uh, it's somewhere you worked a long time. Presumably you've retired to a Caribbean island somewhere now. You're just sort of bathing in 50 pound notes all the time, right? <laughs> um, I would love to, to, to say that that was correct. Um, <laughs> sadly not. Sadly not. Um, as Yeah, we had a great career at Bettis Hall and uh, actually along with working with those guys and the family uh, very much so they became you know very good family friends as well um, it was a very good mutual agreement for uh, for me to sort of go on to pastures new and 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 for uh, Will and Amy to sort of you know, step up and or they already had stepped up but to to just go our separate ways as it were um, but yeah no um, so yeah going forward we've got lots of things um, going on um, you know, trying to make a business for myself or even paddle my own canoe, if you'd like to say it like that. Um, there's lots of different elements to our business, which is very exciting. Um, but yeah, so we're all here. So that new business is RT Crops, as I mentioned earlier. Are there, you, you must have learned a huge amount of betters that you're able to take with you to your new venture. What are the, some of the biggest lessons you're, you know, you've learned that you're taking through? Yeah, like you say, uh, Digby, quite rightly, I've, I've learned, you know, I joined Betis as a very young man who didn't have, who thought they had a lot of experience, but actually probably didn't in those days. Um, but no, I mean, I've learned an awful lot about hatching pheasants, um, a lot about keeping pheasants alive, how to rear them, density rates, best rearing to use, um, along with, you know, how to host a day shooting, how to try and look after the keepers to get the most out of those guys, um, you know, and and really, I suppose learning everything that it takes to run a successful commercial shooting enterprise. Um, you know, I became um, the sales director for Betis and I have been for the last five or six years. So together with all of that, you know, trying to get sales through the door, I mean, it was a massive hatchery. It's a big ask. There's a lot of, you know, we were hatching in excess of 600 so the whole logistics of getting a perishable item like a day-old pheasant um, to its sort of forever home, which had to happen all within 12 hours, was a big ask. So I've learned massive amounts from that, which going forward, um, you know, has will pay dividends and, and is paying dividends um, in my business. Because as we were discussing before, there's plenty of different sort of areas to our business. The reason we got into crops, I suppose, was A, to try and offer the top quality crops for large scale and also small scale shoots to fit in with different farming schemes and bits and pieces. But also on a personal level, I was very worried that my whole income was was in the shooting industry because with its ever, ever ending sort of threats, um, I wanted to get a business that could sort of start standing on its own without sadly without the use of um of, of the pheasant shooting industry so that's yeah. what we've done but it's automatically fallen back into lots of cover crops um because of my contacts and my and you know my background mm. i suppose yeah yeah of course yeah 
Um, but together with that, I mean, we're running two private shoots, um, one in the West Country, one in uh, West Sussex. Um, together with that, we've got we're, we're developing a rearing system, which you may have seen has gone live on Tweedle just recently. Yeah. Um, we are obviously buying lots of partridge and pheasant chicks together with poults, um, and we are trading with, um, with with those with original um, customers and new customers, and looking after people, getting to know what they want on their shoots, and trying to supply exactly what they're after at the right price and have the right breed and the right origin and whatever we do with those. And then obviously we've got Cropside. So at the moment is it's a small company. It's just Lizzie and I, although I've got um, people sort of working around the country sort of on a very self-employed basis for me. Um, but at the moment, yeah, it's gone from uh, from probably a business that was employing over 100 to myself <laughs> and my good wife. <laughs> so it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. that's us in a nutshell, really. Um, but yeah, we're very busy, so it's good. So you said earlier you reckon you've hosted a thousand days at the Brigands. How many um, game birds do you think you sold in your years? Have you ever tried to work out, you know, poults, chicks, eggs included? I haven't, but I could give you a rough, a rough idea, and I reckon it would be in excess of seventy million. Yeah. <laughs> that's extraordinary yeah. that's a huge number so crofty there's probably few better people to ask um what's your current view on the the game bird market as it stands today like how where do you see things going where are we at the moment what's your view i mean obviously as we all know the biggest bird the, the biggest threat to the breeding operations now is bird flu as we all know that's that's simple um i think looking at the market and obviously reading the market every every, every day as, as you guys will as well um, I think a lot of people last year that were lucky enough to get stock decided that they were going to safeguard their shoots going forward quite rightly so a lot of people and a lot of game farms thought they'll be you know one step ahead and they would keep a lot of laying stock certainly pheasant laying stock mm. so what basically has happened is that you know, every every Tom, Dick, and Harry have ca- caught up whatever they can catch to safeguard their shoots. So they've got eggs coming out of their ears. The French have now bounced back with, um, you know, normal sort of stocking densities. So all of a sudden, from last year of being absolutely as short as it could possibly be, we've now certainly on the pheasant side, we've got a glut um, and a big glut. You know, mm. if you said to me, can you go and buy a million pheasants tomorrow? I would be able to do that very easily, which obviously is pushing the price down. Um, and therefore, I feel sorry for the game farmers because they're having to push prices down, sometimes even below what it's costing them to shift them. Um, now, on the partridge side, we're still very reliant on partridges coming in from i.e. Spain or France. And the reason for that is is that it's not viable really to lay them in this country because our season for when partridge chicks need to be uh, become poults isn't long enough. It's about nine or ten weeks. And as you know, when you lay um, partridges, you need one female to one male. So therefore, the overwintering cost of those is a lot more. So you need a minimum of 15 weeks. Hence why you know the French have got... Um, markets open to here for the nine weeks early go to Denmark and late go to Spain so Mm. they can really utilize it so on the on the partridge side 
Um, we are about right. They were very, very short earlier, but there's been a lot of um, a lot of cancelled orders, whether people shoots aren't paying deposits or whatever. They are coming alive again now, and you can buy a few. But uh, you know, four weeks ago, you couldn't you couldn't have paid a hundred quid for a partridge chick. There was nothing. Mm. Um, but they are starting to come on the market a bit again now. So you, you just back to the pheasants for a second. You mentioned the price is coming down. Um, it's already gone from what six fifty seven pounds to sort of five twenty thirty. Maybe even though I'm, that was the latest I heard. What, where do you see the price in, say, you know, July, August? Again, it all depends. I know, sadly, that um, there have been reports of bird flu in different game farms up and down the country. It's going to come yeah. down to a supply and demand, um, you know, completely supply and demand. You know, the problem you have as a game farmer, if you have birds on your field and they are, you know, they have to go at seven weeks, as you know, mm. um, if they haven't sold them, it's damage limitation. So I would like to say that the poults need to be six quid. You know, at the end of the day, people are putting their neck on the lines and they need to make money. Certainly these game farmers, and they have not had it easy. Um, however, sadly, if the market if the market is flooded, they're going to come down and poults are going to make it less than what it is going to cost you to produce them, which is no good for our industry going forward. Um, you know, but again, it comes down to supply and demand. If they're there and they've got to go and they're costing money, then people are going to just try and get what they can for them. Mm. Yeah. So, so for game farmers, then we do have a sort of game farmer audience for the podcast as well. So if somebody's got excess poults, uh, excess, uh, chicks right now, um, what's your advice to them? Hold tight cut prices, wait and see what happens. If they've got, chi- if they've got day olds, then they've got to go. Just get them gone. You know, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't rear anything on spec from now forward. Certainly on the pheasants, maybe partridges, but pheasants, I would not be rearing anything on spec. Um, having said that, the market can change very quickly, as we know. You know, any big providers go down with bird flu and they're not allowed to, you know, trade. Then the whole market will turn upside down, and those pulse could be worth something. But it is playing Russian roulette. Um, I've always been a big fan of doing your costs, knowing what you need to get for them, get them sold, done. I'm not a massive risk taker on that. I mean, don't get me wrong, when we were at Betis, some weeks we'd have 10, 20, 30,000. Um, but personally, if it was my business, just do what you can do, do it well, get what you need to get for them. You know your margins and don't try and be greedy because sometimes in, in you know, five years ago, yes, you'd sell them. I think yeah. certainly on my, on my business, I'm not trying to be clever this year. Just try and get what you can do done um, and, and put it down to a good year because it can go wrong very quickly. Yeah, so um, you mentioned the bird flu in this big game farm in Wales. Um, how much of an impact will have that have on the market, do you think? Um, I don't think it will have... It will have impact. Of course, it will have impact. And I've been you know, on the phone to everyone involved because not only have I worked with them, they're good friends and I've tried to support them where I can. Mm. Um, the laying field is, is, is away from the hatchery. Um, and therefore I'm not quite sure of all the figures or anything, but I, I, I believe the laying field, um, contracted, um, bird flu. However, the hatchery is clean. They are taking eggs in from France as normal. And I believe the French are looking after them very well. And, you know, realistically, the hatchery is running full steam. Mm. Um, and hopefully, um, that will be the end of it. And, you know, I wish them luck. They've had five, as everybody has, I've had four or five very, very tough years with coronavirus, bird flu, 
egg imports last year. I wish them well because they've worked very hard and they deserve it. Yeah, I mean, so encouraging to hear that the that the hatcheries are you know full capacity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, very very good to hear. And I believe the customers, as they should do, they're supporting them, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, can we ask you to look into your crystal ball? Where do you see things going next year? Are the people who've been uh, sort of uh, catching up and, and trying to have their own rearing operations, are they going to go, well, we don't need to do that anymore? Are the game farms going to, are we going to have game farms going under? Where? What do you think's on the cards? I think um, this year will be the toll where, like you quite rightly said, George, you know, if game farmers can't sell their product for what they need to to make a profit then you know if you only have to look in stags auctions there are auctions for used equipment from game farms and shoots coming up left right and center it's a high high risk industry but it's an industry that we're all involved in and we understand going forward i think that it will do a full circle back to french supply which i do think is some of the best you know lines and genes in the country it's all very well sorry in the world but it's all very well going back to catching up pheasants but then we go down the realms of we catch up from the stuff that hasn't been shot that that either hasn't flown very high or it's gone out the side of drives and we end up um, breeding a pheasant that doesn't fly Mm. Uh, so you know, I think it will do full circle. It's very, very expensive to overwinter hens now. You know, pheasant hens you're looking at, depending on how you run it, it's anywhere between 17 to 25 pounds per hen. Plus, you've got the, the added threat of, of overwintering them. They could go, you're, you're doubling your chance of bird flu because you're keeping them for twice as long or mm, three times yeah. as long. So, yeah, I think it will do full circle and go back to where we were sort of back two years ago i would think and, and you mentioned well george mentioned price what should a poult cost do you think it all depends because you know you speak to game farmers they say well a pheasant poult needs to be eight pounds and a partridge poult needs to be 12 pounds but you know i'm on the other end of it as well now where as i always have been you know you got to sell the shooting you know so it's all very well saying well let's have 12 pound for a partridge well as you all know, if you shoot one in four partridges on a high bird shoot, that's very good. Well, mm. all of a sudden, you're £48 a shot bird on poults before you've keepered it, before you've rented the estate, before you put vehicles on their feed, day costs and everything else. So that ain't going to work. You know, the way I see it is we are at the point now where, yes, don't get me wrong, there's ultra wealthy people that can afford to shoot. Of course they can, you know. But it's a bit like, you know, is it worth it? If you went into the local post office and went for a bottle of water and they said that's a tenner please yes you could afford it but you probably wouldn't mm. buy it mm. Mm. Um, yeah. so we've just got to be careful what is a pulp worth you know I think realistically pheasant pulp six pounds partridge pulp eight pounds but I'm going to get absolutely hounded by the game farmers for saying that but I also see that we've got to keep those costs under control if we can because otherwise the end user is not going to be there and then we won't be able to produce pulps anyway yeah, um, yeah absolutely true. yeah and so um uh, again, on this on this um, pricing of poults, if you were a well, you are a shoot. So, what you, what was your your advice be to people running shoots? Should they be buying now, or should they be holding holding tight to see if price drops further? Um, I think um, realistically, shoots if they haven't bought now is is not that's not good business. You know, at the end of the day, if you bought your poults fifty p dearer than perhaps you could do going forward, then 
you know, you do your sums on what you do first, get everything ordered up, give you give your game farmers a bit of a, a break so they know where they're going so they can put plans in, take some of the risk. Um, and if they are 50p dearer than they were now, it's a bit like a skiing holiday, isn't it? You know, if you book it well in advance, it's more expensive. Um, but, you know, when, when you get there, you know, a week before you go, you try and book it, it might not be there. So I yeah. think, you know, as long as you've done your, long as you've done your maths and it all works, you know, get organized. Um, and if you've paid a bit too much room, well, so be it, build it into the cost. Yeah. And can I just add to that, that, um, you know, you've mentioned that game farms are gen- at genuine risk of going bust this year. And where will we be without our game farms, particularly people who've, you know, you know, yeah. put, put a lot at risk. So there is a, there is a sort of, a, you know, what's the right thing to do here? Um, but also from as well. I mean, would you agree? for the shoot, it's a selfish thing as well, right? If the game farm goes under, then uh, you're left without a supply next year. So it's a, potentially a sort of short-sighted yeah. thing to worry about a slightly cheaper bird in two months' quite, time. Quite right too, and and I mean, you know, having like you say, I've sold many game birds in my time, and you know, you'd I'd be on the phone flat out first day of the week of February, and you know, the people organised would be like, "Yeah, we'll have this, we'll have that, we'll have this." Um, and actually, the people that would say, well, actually, I'm going to hold on because the price is going to go down, it gives you a bit of a sour taste because you think, well, yeah. okay, well, that's fine. And then I'd do my damnedest if they were going to to try and sell out before they came back on. And many times yeah. we did and said, no, I'm really sorry, but we're done. Um, and often you turn people around then because then all of a sudden they'll be the ones booking in February. You know, you've got to, this whole thing is a massive planning because certainly if you're selling pulps, so you've got a seven-week-old pulp and they're thinking, oh, well, I'm having them delivered in July. I have to work back seven weeks to get a chick and then four weeks back from that to get an egg and at least two weeks back from that to order it. So, you know, where they're thinking, well, I'm not having them until two weeks' time. I've had to do that or whoever's organising the hatchery, wherever it may be, has had to do, you know, a a minimum of 12 weeks before that pulp delivery, a minimum of that. Yeah, it's similar to to the shooting, isn't it? You're getting more and more people saying we'll hold tight and buy our shooting in September, October rather than in... January, yeah. February, and it does no service to you know to the shoots, does it? No, it's, it's just, um, it's just how you're supposed to plan. Exactly, and it's just putting it's just putting more needless risk into a an already very risky business. Mm. You know, we're all in yeah. it together, um, and I think that you know as much preparation as we can as we can do is is fair on all parties. Then, yeah. So um, you've spoken about the price of shooting, and is it worth it? It's on everybody's lips at the minute. Um, well, first of all, do you think it is worth it? Um, you've you've run one of the most expensive shoots in the country. Yeah. Do you think it's worth it? And then and then secondly, what's going to happen to the price of shooting next year? Do you think it's going to drop, or is there going to be demand for it? How's I that going to play out? I think the you know we've got to we've got to put the best theatre on we can. Traditional English or UK shooting is by far the best driven wing shooting in the world in my view you know the tradition the entourage the you know it is 100 percent worth it if you've been brought up in the shooting the thing that worries me you know we know how much shooting costs it's hugely expensive but if there's somebody who's done pretty well at business say at our age and says oh i might go and try a new hobby and you said well if you can come come and have a day shooting you know, um, all it is is um, three and a half thousand pounds per day. Um, that guy's going to be like, "Are you all right in the head?" Isn't it? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just 
we're relying on tradition. We're relying on people that have shot. Our, our audience is getting older, um, and we need that young blood coming in that have the same... You know, when you go shooting, there's no other hobby than that feeling when you see a flush of pheasants coming out of a wood. To me, that's, that's the best feeling you're going to get. Um, but to other people, they say, well, actually, I like shooting birds because, um, you know, I just like pulling the trigger. I'm going to go to South Africa and I'm going to have a week shooting out there for three and a half grand, including of everything. So it is hugely expensive. We have to keep our standards high. We have to get costs under control so that we don't go anymore. Going forward, what's the main cost? I suppose feed costs, um, importation costs, i.e. Of, of the actual egg itself. Um, but we mustn't get carried away and try and make too much profit and profiteer because we have to keep the price. at a. It cannot go anymore. In my view, it cannot go anymore because if it gets any more, I mean, pheasants are getting up into the realms of, of grouse shooting. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I know the costs are there. It's hugely expensive, but we, you know, we need the, the, the audience there for the end product of, of a driven day shooting. And if it, you know, it's starting to price people out now, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're seeing a lot of that, I think. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, you know, another way of an estate sort of trying to keep its price per bird down is to lift the bag because then obviously your day costs are, are divided be- between, say, 300 rather than 200 or 400 rather than 300 to try and keep that day cost down, um, which again, you know, sadly prices your, you know, your sort of normal living sort of wage person who shoots 150 or 100 bird day and that's going to a 200 it it's pricing them out the market which is difficult isn't it yeah 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 Um, so what i don't suppose you're privy to the prices anymore but what last season a a a bird at brigands would have been what 80 pounds something like that last season um it was 58 plus vat so with the vat you're about 70 pounds a bird yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so how does the, how does that um, how do you go about pricing it then? Because what how, how do you what are the things that you factor in when you're pricing up a bird uh, somewhere like the Brigands? The most Im- the most important thing on any shoot is you've got to work out what you're going to shoot, i.e., percentage, because that is a massive difference. You know, if you can go and shoot some rolling partridges in um, Gloucestershire stroke Cotswolds where you can return the drives and get a good go at them and you may even be able to shoot 50% um, then obviously your pulse say that are coming in at I don't know at eight pounds a piece your pulp price per bird is only 16 pounds whereas yeah. if you're only shooting 25% i.e. brigands because they're so high you know your pulp price is now looking more like £32 per bird. You know, yeah. somewhere... So all of a sudden, there's a massive... There's a, there's a £16 per shot bird, because obviously the price per shot bird has to pay for the ones that haven't been shot as well, as you well know. Um, yeah. So there's a massive £16 difference there, mm. just on percentage yeah. return. That's your biggest thing. And I always say to the keepers, and certainly the keepers I'm working with now, you know... The difference between making money and losing money is percentage return. Mm. Um, that's your yeah. biggest factor. Um, so yeah, and of course the other thing about places like Brigands and, um, and and similar shoots is that the the hospitality side of things is, you know, on a scale very different from what you might find at a you know a, a more average sort of a shoot. So what proportion of how much of the the 
um, the the price per bird is the does the hospitality entail? So, I mean, that's that's quite a funny one actually, because you know you can make hospitality look very good, but actually, a poor bottle of champagne to a good bottle of champagne is only ten pounds, and you might go through three or four of them a day. Um, you know, we have yes, we have a chef that comes out and cooks in front of us. The ingredients is no more than than a, than, a, than a normal day. You know, a lot of it's pheasant breast just marinated. It's you know, it's very very cheap to produce. But all the, the only difference is because the chef comes out and cooks in front of you. You know, it looks like we throw a lot more money at it. The way I see it is, whatever shoot you're at, your chef's going to be at the at the at back in the kitchen cooking shepherd's pie or roast beef or whatever you're having, and all we're doing is bringing them out in the mid time too. So actually, hospitality. Yeah, you know, good bottle of champagne is going to cost you 35, 40 quid as opposed to 10 pounds. Yes, we throw mm. a bit more money at it, but actually in the grand scheme of things, it's not much. So it's know? more about yeah. the theatre then in that regard than it is about the, the spent expenditure. Absolutely. And we put extra staff on that if, you know, if somebody would like a drink after, the, after a drive, they will have a drink and they'll have whatever drink they like. But, you know, realistically, they can only drink so much, um, some more than others, I'm sure, Digby. Um, but, um, but no, you know, it's all about show the way I, you know, and that's the way shooting's gone. Um, you know, when I first started in my career, 2008, I suppose, commercial pheasant shooting, we used to get the chef who was cooking breakfast to cook a few more sausages. Um, and while he was cooking breakfast, he'd heat a big tin of, um, tomato and basil soup, bachelors, chuck it in a thermos and that's off, off you go. And now we're doing dim sum cooked in the field. Um, you know, <laughs> homemade sausage rolls, you know, partridge, sweet and sour partridge, you know, all sorts of different stuff. It's gone the whole circle. But if we're expecting people to come from top end, you know, restaurants in London to come and to come and stand in a field that could well be absolutely wetting it down with rain, we have to lift our standard, which gets them to come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you've gone are the days of saying, well, that shoot's great. I mean, the birds are great, but the hospitality's not very good. Those days are gone. Everything. Mm. If you're charging in excess of £30,000 for a day shooting, it has to be right. Everything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. As you said, it's the same as going away for a week skiing, isn't it, with all of your friends? You've got to always remember that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Moving on, we've talked about the, the game bird port side of things. Um, RC crops. Well, it's in the name, isn't it? You you um you sell crops to agriculture, well, to farmers and also to to shoots. Um, can you tell us a bit more about why you got involved in that or your background in that sort of thing? So, always always had a good background in farming, even before I got into the sort of shooting um, element of things. Um, we got into that just to sort of try and safeguard some sort of um, income in case shooting ever dread the day that was ever restricted or even banned so it would give us something else to sort of try and ramp up to give us an income Mm. Um, and then we sort of as we as we started to get into it we were literally doing maize kale and triticale to start just three or four crops like nothing and then as people ask as I've always been uh, a chap if someone asked me I'll go and try and find it so we now have over 320 products on our website um, whether it's uh, mid-tier all these different stewardships, forage. So we do lots of different grass. We do maize for forage, biogas, and game cover. Um, but then we sort of fell into the mid-tier stewardship, and it was very much by luck, luck not judgment. Everybody thought I was very clever, but actually it was complete luck. Um, <clears throat> where, obviously, as subsidies get faded out, farmers have to work harder to, to, to get those subsidies. Um, and 
we we have sort of gone along with it and provided the crops for people that they need to 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 adhere to their schemes to get paid the higher rate of their subsidies. So whether that be AB9, wild bird food, um, GS4s, all sorts of different things, AB16, wild bird, wild flowers, wild seeds, you know, supplementary feeding, all that sort of stuff. We went into that in, in quite a big way, and that's actually, you know, a, a very large part of our business now, um, along with good support from people I've met along the way um, with with the cover crops. And that's the other great thing with it is that, you know, you can use wild bird uh, mixtures for cover crops. They're very good. We've made cover crops, um, made wild bird mixtures to um, to be to be cover crops, and therefore people are getting paid to drill them. So that's obviously a great mm. um, idea, along with feeding all the little birds uh, as well as your pheasants. So yeah, it works very well. Very well. So are you seeing lots of shoots uh, switch from you know maybe the the traditional kale or or maize to these wild bird mixes? A lot, yeah. I mean, there are always vital drives that people will not put into bird mixtures because you know at the end of the day partridges are easier driven down rows of maize as are pheasants um, and maize as long as it stands all season has good good food value and, and actually a very good cover um, but yes we are seeing a lot of a lot of um, AB9 mixtures used for game covers you know you can mix it in with kale um, obviously you've got to adhere to the different percentages but you know you we're seeing a lot of that now, a lot more and a lot more. And we've done a lot of different custom mixtures for different estates to to try and utilize what they exactly want. Um, but yes, a lot of it, a lot of it. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so l- last time in the previous episode, we had Jamie Horner on, uh, who was saying that um, he would like to see uh, a compulsory proportion of all cover crops given over to wild bird mix. Um how would you feel about that? Would what, what do you think on that idea? I I don't disagree with that. You know, I think he's absolutely right. I think, you know, going forward with how we have to justify our sport, then you know, if you do go up an AB nine wild bird uh, seed, which is what he's talking about, you see all sorts of different birds and and um, you know creatures. Um, but um, and I agree with him. You know, at the end of the day. We are trying to fight a battle um, that we are very good conservationists, which we are, um, and you know we we do need to do this sort of stuff. I think to to make sure that we are looking after the habitat that we are using to give us an income. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah. Crofty, I spoke to you the other day about this, um, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a scenario. Um, which might help some of our listeners, certainly with uh, smaller shoots. So my father's allowed um, me or we've decided to put in two acres of cover crop on our little farm shooting Cornwall. Um, I mean, we're shooting 10 birds at the minute, uh, not, not a hundred. So, um, yeah. that gives you, it gives you an idea. So a new cover crop, two acres, um, in Cornwall, currently a pasture, you know, permanent pasture. Uh, my father and I are really keen to provide some value for our pheasants. Um, the, cover crop is is alongside a you know a, a woodland at the top of the well at the top of the valley um so pheasants uh wild birds conservation value is you know very important for us my mother wants it to look pretty because she can see it from her from her dining room window 
Um, and uh, uh, my father then wants to turn his sheep out onto it in February. Have you got um, how we go about doing that? I, that that's, I mean, so, you know, my mother, my father, me, the pheasants, the wild birds. How do you go about putting a mix together for that? Do you do the lottery? The sheep. The sheep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, great, great idea. And, um, <clears throat> you know, again, going down, if it needs to be AV9 applicable, which is your wild bird feed. I mean, we do all sorts of different ones. We do a good feed and cover mixture where it would be a, you know, high proportion of spring triticale, spring uh, barley and spring wheat, together with dwarf sorghum for a bit of sort of cover. And then you've got your millets and sunflowers for the seeds to feed the little birds. Now, we also do a two-year one, so um, where we would add quite a proportion of kale to that. Mm. So um, that would obviously then be not perennial, but it would work for two years. So that would cut your costs of sowing that seed down. But the reason I would say kale is... You know, a lot of the cover crops that we do for the reason being care is once the shooting season's over, you turn the sheep on there um, and they can then graze that. So, yeah, I would definitely go down with something like a feed and cover mixture um, with with dwarf sorghum for your pheasants and the white millet and bits and pieces in there for the little birds together with quite a high proportion of um, kale, maybe, you know, two and a half kilos per hectare sort of worth of, um, of kale to give you your 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 extended cover and your two-year uh, last for the the actual scheme and then maybe the sheep could nibble it off after the <laughs> and do you think we're trying to do too much i've got too many parties involved in this conversation or is that genuinely feasible um, i pretty wise you could add some facelia to it which would actually that comes out really really nicely well um, sunflowers are, are lovely as well in the summer aren't they so exactly that's... so that would keep your mum happy and you could even go and pick some and perhaps put them in a jar on a kitchen uh, <laughs> by the sink in the kitchen so she could see a close-up of them as well yeah lovely oh brilliant and um those mixes do you um sort of tailor them to um individuals or do you sell them by the what i do is we look at we look at the proportion of mixtures um that we do the year before and then we get those made for the coming year obviously schemes change but we try and make them so that so that we you know what people want but yeah i mean it's unbelievable you know what some farmers are like and and i've got lots of farming friends you know if you say it's got 25 percent spring triticale and 24 percent spring barley they'll be like oh actually i'd like 24 percent spring triticale and 25 percent you know just so yeah i suppose what i'm trying to say is we do uh we do a lot of custom mixing um and then we get that signed off by um, the guys that design all the mixtures in the different factories to make sure that it's all applicable um, so people can get what they like. But also, you know, they've got, we've got to get the paperwork because, you know, the, <clears throat> you know, people come out, DEFRA will come out or, or the government will come out and they will check these, um, these, these margins. And if you're out, then it, you could potentially lose your single farm payment, which yeah. I don't really want to have to be liable for if I can help it. No, yeah, absolutely. yeah, and so do the mixes and the kinds of crops that you recommend to people change according to the part of the country they're in. Obviously, we talked about Digby and Cornwall, where it's you know wet and Atlantic winds and all that kind of stuff. Does would that change, say, for me here in Hampshire or someone in Norfolk? Or you definitely one hundred percent you get good growing areas and you get bad growing areas. Um, we use different FAOs of um, of maize, which basically means um, different sort of early or later varieties um, for when they actually become ripe. Um, <clears throat> there's always seeds that will grow everywhere. You know, millet's pretty good. 
Um, dwarf sorghum will grow pretty much, you know, maize is obviously altitude dependent as well. Um, you know, we use a lot of reed canary grass in marginal sites. Um, you know, different varieties of kale that have been developed to to grow in, in different altitudes and different soil types. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll very much, I have some good agronomists, which I um, often use. We get the soil sampled wherever we can um, and try and give them the best the best chance but marginal sites are marginal sites and you just got to be careful with those yeah yeah very yeah, interesting yeah. well thank you i i will uh go go home to my parents and tell them i've got the the yeah uh, <laughs> you got, got the, the solution. Solution. You, you yeah can expect, you can expect a big order from the taylor household <laughs> i'll keep an eye on uh on, on on the website orders i can't wait you can probably <laughs> post it to him in a jiffy bag yeah <laughs> No, fantastic. Well, it wouldn't be the smallest order we've had, uh, ever had, Digby, uh, and you'll be very welcome and a valued supporter of RC crops. No, thank you. And you can name the mix after Digby's mix or yeah, Digby, yeah, the tailored mix or something like that. <laughs> the tailored mix, I like it, yeah. yeah. Very, very good. good. Right, Crofty. So the way we like to um, finish off these episodes uh, is to ask our guests uh, a simple question. Um if you had the power to change just one thing about shooting and everybody had to comply upon pain of death, what would that one thing be? The one thing, <clears throat> excuse me, I would change is that leave the country people to run the countryside. It annoys me beyond belief to see people that have no idea about how we run and work in the countryside trying to give their opinion forward when they have no idea and it annoys mm. me and leave our tradition alone when we are actually doing a great job of running the countryside absolutely it's interesting so would would how would that pan out though so, so obviously we have defra um would you have a department for the countryside because I, th so I think a lot of the countryside stuff just sort of gets lumped in with farming um would you would you like to see a, a minister for 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 the countryside or something like well, that? Well, I would actually like to see, and this is going to be quite outspoken, so watch out. Um, <laughs> that people stay on footpaths. There's no right to roam. <clears throat> you know, people that have no idea about the countryside, i.e., grouse shooting, i.e., pheasant and partridge shooting, just don't get involved. There's, you know, at the end of the day, there's things that go on in the world that I don't understand and I don't particularly like, but I don't go over there and protest because I don't understand them. Keep people on the footpaths, looking at pretty flowers, walking their dogs, um, and keep them away from active farming practices and shooting people. Um, what about having a rural parliament that gets voted in by rural people? So you've got to have a postcode where there's, you know, fewer than two houses or something in the postcode or whatever it is. And only those people can vote to elect the rural parliament, and then the rural parliament decides. I think that's a fantastic going on. idea. That's how it's going to happen. Yeah. I really like it. We should stand. We should stand. But no, it yeah. just it just annoys me. You know, people just don't have a clue, um, mm. and you know, don't comment. I've always thought that don't comment on something you don't understand. And actually, gamekeepers. You know, I spend a lot of time in the Exmoor now. You know, what they're doing for the environment down there and all over the country is quite unbelievable. And without them, it'd be a bloody mess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm. Well, Crofty, thank you very much for joining us. It's been really lovely having you on. Yeah. Thank you, Richard, very much yeah. indeed. Really enjoyed it. I'm, uh, 
No, thank you very much, Jensen. It's uh, yeah, very flattered to be asked again and um, a massive supporter of you guys and the podcast. So um, thank you ever so much. Great. Right. That's it. Do get in touch to let us know what you thought. You can email pod at gunsonpegs.com uh, to share your thoughts on what Crofty's had to say. Uh, we would love more suggestions for the either or questions that we can ask our guests. Uh, so do get in touch with those as well. Uh, we will be back again very soon with another special guest. But until then, stay safe out there. And thanks for listening.